I'm Alison Waring, and you're listening to Canada Out of the Closet. Well, hello there, and welcome to another episode of Canada Out of the Closet. My name is Travis Bozer, and with me again is my good friend, Mr. John Whitten. Say hello to the folks, John. How are the folks doing today? <laughs> I don't know why I tell you to say hello to the folks. I'm just going to just say, here's John. He can do what he wants. You can always hope. <laughs> uh, you know, John, our guest today is Alison Waring. Uh, she's an author who wrote a memoir a few years back called Confessions of a Fairy's Daughter, Growing Up with a Gay Dad. Uh, and it's a really interesting story. Uh, they grew up outside of Toronto. And uh, she just talks about how her father came out when she was 12 and kind of how the family worked through that together and and how it affected their relationships and how she worked through it. And it's such an interesting story. I have to admit, though, uh, a friend of mine gave me this book quite a long time ago. And then I was doing something, I was busy reading something else maybe already. And so I put it on the shelf and then forgot I had it for the longest time. It moved with me from Saskatchewan to Alberta. It moved between a couple houses. And then I finally one day was looking for a book to read and saw it on the shelf again and thought, oh my gosh, I've never read this book. And so I dived into it on a cross-country road trip with uh, with Curtis, and and I wish I would have read it sooner. I just fell in love with with Joe Waring, her father, and the story that she told of, of him and his life. Well, I'm so glad you did read it, because then you brought it to our, our podcast, and it's going to be wonderful to talk with Allison today. Uh, she has mm-hmm. a great story. Her father has an, a very interesting life. And, uh, it's, I just love listening to authors because, you know, mm. professionals with words, mm-hmm. maybe For someday sure. I can be like that. Well, one can hope maybe when you reach 90, you'll, you'll get around <laughs> to it. <laughs> Why don't we jump in with Allison? Well, John, our guest has joined us now, and I'm very excited to have her join us today here. A number of years ago, a friend of mine uh, handed me this copy of this book that she thought I would enjoy called Confessions of a Fairy's Daughter, Growing Up with a Gay Dad. You know, Alison Waring's memoir is funny, it's heartwarming, it tells the story of her university professor father, Joe, uh, coming out of the closet when she was a preteen, and it also tells us about, you know, this time in our country's history and the experience of LGBTQ plus folks then. Um, Allison's here today to share this story with us, and we're so excited to see her. Welcome so much, Allison. Thank you. Uh, so we usually start by asking our guests when they came out, uh, but we're doing something a little different today and having a guest on who's had a family member come out and kind of talking about that experience. So I think we'll start with a little different question and ask, when was it that your father came out publicly? My dad came out in 1978, which was um, early days uh, for this country. And yeah. so, the, the, yeah, the experience was was quite different. He also came out in a small town in Ontario, Peterborough, Ontario. Uh, we lived in a little, mm-hmm. little neighborhood there that didn't really have any words for what had just happened. Mm. And so he came out publicly then. I imagine there was quite a bit of a struggle before that. Was there any... Was there kind of a timeline of like, when did he come out publicly and when did he come out to the family or to himself even, or kind of yeah, so, details that way? Yeah, actually. So I, so I'll go back and, and rephrase what I said. He start, he came out to himself in 78. Uh, he didn't really come oh, okay. out 
Yeah. And then he, his coming out to his family was a bit complicated because, um, my mother actually just began to suspect that something was going on with him. Although she thought he was just having an affair with another woman, she didn't actually suspect mm. that he was gay. And so, and he was, he had been on a sabbatical in Germany uh, by himself doing research. And when he came back, he was very, he was quite preoccupied and she just noticed something was off with him. And so once when he, uh, stepped away, she went down into his office and started rooting through papers and discovered, well, discovered all kinds of things, uh, uh, newspapers, magazines, letters, uh, journals, and um, a whole box of things, actually. And so then she confronted him and he came out to her. Um, so that would have been about 1980. So he was, it took him, yeah, it, he, he, he was really wrestling for two years. And then publicly, I, you know, I don't even know what I can say about that, except that it was the early, over the early 80s, he came out um, mm. gradually and gradually and and one friend at a time, I'd say. Uh, so you talk about your mom kind of suspecting and looking, kind of rooting through some stuff. Um, and just the time frame, I mean, just to, to give our listener the real time frame of, of where that's happening in the late seventies and the early eighties. I really like in the book, how you talk about, um, you know, growing up, you thought everyone's dad listened to show tunes and made French pastries and wore the silk pajamas and all those things. Um, do you remember at a young age, I, 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 my dad, my host must've been just very different. I guess. Maybe I had the different father, um, but do you ever remember at a young age, like, was there any discussion on homosexuality, not even just in your dad's, in, in reference to your dad, but just at all at that time happening? No, we didn't have the word in Peterborough, Ontario. I mean, none of that vocabulary had arrived, really. Um, we, had, <laughs> we, we had certain epithets in the school playground for things that I didn't even, yeah. I didn't understand. I mean, I just knew that there were certain things you weren't supposed to be, but I didn't, but I had no understanding yeah. of what that was. No, I, there's a family yeah. video of my dad in the back garden with the three kids. Um, and we were all kind of five, seven and nine, something like that. And he is dancing around the garden with us, um, pretending to be a butterfly. And we're following behind him now. <laughs> you know, most people would look <laughs> at that and say, wow, you really didn't, no, no suspicions at all. Huh? Um, but the thing is, it wasn't, I mean, it's, it is really important to place it in the context of the time, which was that there, was, there were yeah. no public figures who were out. None. Zero. It was unimaginable. Yeah. Um, there were, there yeah. was the odd pop star that was rumored to maybe be gay, but there, it was kept firmly, firmly in the closet. And those who did come out just faced mm -hmm. ridicule. I mean, we're, we're in such a different time. No, there were, no, there were no gay dads in the neighborhood. There was no even actually, even within the gay community. And this is saying a lot. There was still no real understanding or real certainty that the words gay and father could be put into the same sentence. Mm. There, mm -hmm. it, even within the gay community, there were a lot of people who just didn't, who didn't, you know, that just wasn't even, well, people weren't sure if it was possible it, it, or, or, or legal or how would that, how would that work? Um, well, yeah. I shouldn't say they wondered if it were legal. It wasn't. So um, it wasn't. So, yeah. So that and because, I think because of that, it would have been far less understood, I, I imagine. Yes. 
Yeah, well, it was impossible to understand, in fact, because there was no frame of reference to, at all. Right. Just to add some context to this, Allison, how long had your parents been married at this point? Um, 15 years, Just roughly. maybe. Yeah, maybe 15 years. So with a, with a family that seemed happy and successful from all I understand from your book, when your dad came out and ended up moving out of the house, did that lead to anger in you toward him or, or, or having to keep this a secret or tell us about your, your feelings as, as this unfolded? Sure. The first would be just utter confusion. Uh, as I say, we didn't, I didn't have any real way of understanding. Yeah, I remember, for example, so it was my mother who told me and, um, and her timing wasn't great because she told me the night before I was going off on a gymnastics, gymnastics exchange to Germany for six weeks. So, you know, <laughs> this is not a great thing to ladle on a child before they're about to get on a plane and get hurled to Europe by themselves for the first time. So, yeah. so I remember, I remember sitting on while my, while my billet, the woman, the, the gymnast that I was, that I was living with she, while she was asleep, I remember sitting on her, um, on, on her windowsill it overlooked the street and I was writing madly to myself, just trying to understand what it meant. And I remember that I had certain questions like, does this mean, so, so dad loves men. Does this mean he loves Peter and Tip, my, my uh, siblings, my brothers, but not mm. me? You know, that's how little I understood what was happening, even though I was 12 yeah. years old. Um, uh, and then I, and then I was so so terrified that someone would see everything that I had written. I ripped the pages up into little pieces and ate them. Mm -hmm. um, and then, and then when I got back, yeah, I was definitely angry. Um, I remember when my dad finally told me himself, um, he just said, do you have any questions? And I said, no, I don't have any questions, <laughs> but of course I had heaps of them. <laughs> like, what, I, what was so wrong yeah. with the way we were living before? We actually all got along really well. And why do you have to do this? And, and, or can't you just go and do this? You know, can't you just be normal during the week and then go and be gay in Toronto on the weekends? I mean, I just didn't understand <laughs> what, what, why not that? You know, what, uh, yeah. can't we figure this out? This is, this is a terrible thing. And before this, my parents actually were good friends. So it wasn't a house that was you know, rife with argument or rancor or anything. Mm. It was, it was a pretty happy, very musical um, home. And, and it was, yeah. Mm. So, and t so I think that also made it difficult. They weren't a couple, for example, who were always at each other's throats or who misunderstood each other or couldn't communicate or no, they more or less got along. How much uh, time passed after the gymnastics trip before your dad told you? Well, shortly after I got back. Yeah. So it was within okay. weeks of my returning back. But he by then was going back and forth. He had an apartment in Toronto, but he was still going back and forth because, again, there wasn't a model for how does this work that my parents were trying yeah. to figure out. Does he, in fact, go and have a gay life in Toronto on the weekends and come home and play the heterosexual dad during the week? Is that the best thing for the kids? Or And they tried that. They actually did try that. And my mother, you know, bless her, she was willing pretty much to do whatever would work for everybody on balance. And um, 
and they it, it became very clear very quickly she just couldn't live like that. So Alison, you talk about that in the book, but for those who have not read it yet, what was your mom's reaction then? And if you want to expound, expand on how she feels about it now, go right ahead. She, um, well, to my great shock and surprise, my parents have become very good friends and we have a family Zoom every Sunday. And we've done so since the very mm. beginning of the pandemic. So we're now over two years. Every single Sunday, my parents meet on Zoom with the rest of us. And we just, you know, goof around and laugh at stuff and <laughs> tell jokes and compare our week's events. And my parents share different, you know, concerts they've been to or recordings they recommend. Um, but for her at the time, I think the the overriding um emotion for her was one of well humiliation actually because in as it turns out uh, many people knew before she did which was just terribly mm. unfortunate and um and it was yeah it was a it it was the death of something for her and not that it wasn't for my dad but it was really the the beginning of something for him it was a grand opening in his life mm. and he as i say in the book you know he when he came out of the closet he flung that closet door right off its hinges i mean he was so relieved to get out of there and and he was not going back and was just you know at, at one point sort of flamboyantly so to 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 my eye as a teenager, you know, to excess, I found it a little much at times, but, but, um, for my mother, it was really, it was the ending. It was the end of, of a marriage. And I think, um, and, and she'd lost a really, really dear friend and, and had, uh, had lost the trust of him. And so that's really difficult mm. to recover. Travis has a question here. And, um, before he asks it, I'm just going to say for our audience, the name of that book, once again, is Confessions of a Fairy's Daughter, Alison Wearing, W-E-A-R-I-N-G, and it is a great read. So mm -hmm. I think people are going to be fascinated and want to uh, look that one up. Uh, Alison, I just wanted to ask, uh, in the book, you talk about feeling like you're having almost to come out yourself as like the daughter of a gay father. Um, what was it like to, how much time passes from when he comes out to when you kind of come out as the daughter of a gay father yeah. as well. And what's that process like for you to, to work through that? My dad came out, uh, well, to me, I mean, when I was 12. Yeah. And I would say I came out as the daughter of a gay man in that, you know, I was openly and proudly the daughter of a gay man when I was 23. And that mm. process was, it was a long time, obviously. Um, it was all through high school. There was no, once again, there was no context for that conversation to happen at the cafeteria in Crestwood High School in Peterborough, Ontario in the 1980s. I mean, there was no chance of that happening. And so I wow. say to people, I became a writer because of this, because I would go and spend the weekend in in Toronto with my dad, say, and his partner, or his boyfriend or whatever at the time. And we would go to the ballet and then we'd go up for dinner. And then I would come home to Peterborough and sit around in the cafeteria and people would say, what'd you do this weekend? Well, <laughs> I mean, so I would just lie. There was no way that I could tell them what I actually did. So I made up these 
Well, I just started embellishing. And then once I did that, I think I developed a real muscle for it because I also had to be really good at it. I had to supply details. <laughs> I had to get yeah. it right. I had to be able to reference things in you know, weeks from then. So, um, so I had to start to learn how to weave story and character really convincingly on the spot. And, and that probably not only is the reason I became a writer, but the reason I became a performer too, because I also perform this show. Um, mm, and, but mm -hmm. the, but I remember the, I remember being at university and that was the, those were when the first sort of whispers of any kind of, um, well, my dad came out when the country was coming out. He was in that first, um, bath raids protest march in Toronto. Mm. Um, it was, it was our stonewall. It was the moment when, when people finally stood up and said, enough, we've had enough, enough of being, yeah. No. Well, there, that was in the days of, you know, police gay bashing that was wholly overlooked. And, and, uh, and so it was the beginning of this movement, but it took time for that movement to trickle down to arenas such as a high school in Peterborough, or even for that mm -hmm. matter, a university. And now that's unthinkable because it's just so present. But, but at the yeah. time, I remember seeing a student newspaper when I was in about my second year. I remember seeing a student newspaper on uh, one of the tables and it was something about the gay, uh, student uh, club or something like that. And I remember it being so uncomfortable that I got up and moved to a different table. Uh, but mm. I don't know what I was so uncomfortable about, but clearly I was just hiding still so much or, or swallowing so much shame or, or I, you know, I couldn't really even identify what it was um, that made, that made it so uncomfortable for me. Because my relationship with my dad was so open. I loved his partner. I loved his friends. My whole life in Toronto was, was really a pure, I would say a pure celebration. It was, it was so colorful and, and fascinating. And, you know, his friends were also engaging and fun. And, you know, they just were, mm -hmm. they just took me in. So what it was I was holding on to still, I can't even really say, except that. I remember the moment when it dropped for me and it really was, for me, it wasn't a door opening. It was a curtain, sort of a curtain that I'd been holding up in front of myself. It just dropped was um, a concert that my, that I went to that my dad was conducting. He was then the um, conductor of the Toronto gay men's chorus and they were doing a, a Christmas um, concert, but it was right in the depths of AIDS. I mean, people were just dying well, it was it was the worst of that plague, and mm. um, and the mm. in that final the the for the final uh, piece of that concert they sang Silent Night, but they sang at halftime, so very 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 slowly, and they all held candles, and then behind the choir were these images of all of these guys who died that year, images of them with their families, and and it was so moving and so beautiful. And then the last image that went up on the screen was an image of my family, my dad with my mom and my three brothers. And no one had died, obviously, but it was, it was this moment where I just, and my dad was just, I was looking at the back of him. And you know how a conductor dances as they conduct. I mean, I was just looking at the silhouette of my dad 
all these men holding candles, holding vigil for all these beautiful men who had died. And then there was this picture of my family. And it, it just, I've never been prouder. Well, thanks for sharing that moment with us. As, as you think back to that time between ages 12 and 23, were there any particularly difficult moments that you'd like to share with us? Well, there were, <laughs> yeah, there were a few. I mean, sadly, um, <laughs> uh, I also, I think I, I also ended up in a pretty dark teenage time. I developed an eating disorder. I'm not sure what, what that was related to. Was that me trying to control an element of my world? I've never sort of fully psychoanalyzed that. I mean, there are many explanations for that. So that was really dark. Um, I think I was also just trying to disappear from sight. Um, I, I, I then got together with this boyfriend who, who, only we only would listen to jazz in his basement i mean for hours and hours and hours at a time we were together for over a year we never went out once i mean it was just i just hid clearly i just hid i mean i learned a lot about jazz <laughs> but it wasn't a happy no it was not a happy time uh i i had no i had no way of understanding my life actually you know what it was i had no way of living truthfully there was no place in my yes. life for the truth about my life. And so all I could do was lie or hide. And so that's what I did. Um, so in the, in the book, I, I love the way you set it up, how it was like your, your, um, like your experience and then your dad's experience and then your mom's experience, the way it's kind of laid out. Um, and when you get to your dad's experience, you you talk about this blue box that your father kept, um, which is where a lot of what you wrote there kind of came from, from the journals that he had kept and different letters and things that you found. And this box had all sorts of memorabilia in it. Can you tell us what was it like going through this box and kind of diving into this world of your father that you really didn't know a whole heck of a lot about kind of before you did it? It's a great story because I had gone into Toronto to talk to my dad about my book. He knew that I was writing this book. The, the, the book actually began as a one woman show. So I wrote the script first and I, and I performed the show for a year, but the show only tells my side of the story. It's, it's my version of events. Mm. So when I sat down to write the book, I knew I would need a broader story. I knew it couldn't just be my story. I also wanted to include, you know, the, the, the sort of broader national story that, that my father was unwittingly at the forefront of this revolution. And so I had gone into Toronto to ask him a few questions. And in response to one of my questions, I had questions like, you know, were you in the bathrooms? Uh, I didn't, I, I was pretty mm -hmm. sure he wasn't arrested, but were you in the protests? You know, what I was asking about what novels should I be reading? What should I be looking up in the archives and so on? And in response to one of my questions, he disappeared to his basement and he was gone for a few minutes. And then he came up with this box. Now it was a small box, but I learned later this box had sat there unearthed, unopened for 30 years. And he opened up the box and it was full of, as you mentioned, all these different journals, diaries, letters, newspaper clippings mm. and so on. And the very, so he said, well, you might find this interesting. And I just pulled out one piece of paper, the very first piece of paper I pulled out and it said, it was a journal entry written in haste. And my dad already has this inimitable, almost illegible scrawl. 
And it said, um, January 30th, 1980. Last night, I made it with a Roman Catholic priest. (laughs) 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 Every every writer, I mean, you don't even have to be a writer to know that is a gold mine. That box is (laughs) It's what every writer dreams of receiving. And so I instantly knew instantly. Okay, this is it. I don't look no further. Forget the research in the archives. I've mm-hmm. got something better. But but then I had to figure out what to do with it. And it so the first thing I did was transcribe everything. I poured everything into this computer, into my computer, and then I I went through it. I just kept combing through it and combing through it and looking for the most salient bits. I mean, some obviously a line like that I knew, but but I was really trying to figure out how to tell his story using the documents that he'd just given me. And at first I thought I would weave his story into mine, but it didn't work for, for logistical and chronological reasons. It didn't work. And so I, so I had to just keep reading. And since some people have asked, you know, weren't you angry to read about all, all the things your dad got up to in those years? Mm-hmm. And I, I've said to people, I think if I had discovered it, posthumously and without knowing that he had done this, I might have been furious. But something about, well, A, he gave it to me. And then B, Mm. none none of it was secret anymore. As I said, when he came out, Mm -hmm. he blasted that door off its hinges. And so, and he was always willing to answer whatever questions I might have. In fact, it was almost sort of a too much information situation. You know, I would say, okay, dad, that's enough. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I don't need to know. Yeah. uh, (laughs) There's some things that no kid needs to know, right? (laughs) Exactly. exactly. So, um, so I actually found it fascinating and sort of freshly heartbreaking for both my parents. Mm-hmm. I was reading these the words of the time when he was so tormented about what to do. These he didn't want to hurt anybody and yet he knew the only thing he could do was hurt everybody. And that's a mm-hmm. that's a um that's a devastating moment to to realize about your parent. And and then I think yeah. I was also freshly heartbroken for my mother as well, knowing, imagining her, because this was the box she had found, imagining yeah. her discovering all of this through these papers. And so it was devastating, but mostly I, I remember... I would have to go on these long walks. I'd read a bunch of things and I would just go down these rabbit holes of these journals. I mean, these journals, I just spent hours in these journals and then I'd go for these walks and just let it all kind of sift and filter. And, uh, mm-hmm. and, um, and then eventually I built that section of the book using his only his words. So in fact, he tells his own story. Mm-hmm. And it, it, when I read it, like it, it really st- it struck me how much your dad was such a trailblazer um, like in his desire to want to come out and honor who he was authentically, but also continue to be this loving devoted father and kind of have both worlds, which at the time, like you said earlier, that was not customary. Um, 
at the time. And I, I, I really feel that blue box kind of opened up to you. I mean, how much I think that struggle really persisted. Was that, had he talked to you about the struggle before, or was that the first time that you really kind of got that insight into what, um, what he went through struggling through that for so many years? He talked about it very early on, just how difficult it had been, but it actually meant nothing to me as a child. I don't think we have a mm. sense of our parents' emotional landscapes when we are that young. We, we don't really understand their, the fullness of their emotional lives. And it's partly just maturity that, that the maturity we need to understand that. But I think it's also just, you know, the sort of narcissistic element of childhood and especially adolescence. But, uh, so, so I, I didn't realize I, I, that reading his own torment was new to me in a way. Um, and then I'm glad you mentioned the bit about his being a, a pilgrim of sorts or, or a, you know, uh, mm-hmm. uh, I can't remember the word you used, but it's, it is important to remember that, that these guys who came out in those days, they hadn't, they were going on nothing. They were stepping off cliffs, yeah. all of them. And they had mm-hmm. no assurance that they were going to be able to keep their jobs, keep any contact with their children, keep any semblance of respectability in their, you know, and whatever it is, professional life, their communities, whatever, would they be ostracized? There were guys jumping off bridges in those days when they were outed and they were sometimes outed mm-hmm. by the police after they were arrested in these raids or something. So, so though that was the time and it is important to remember that partly because I think it's, it, it's important to honor those people in the same way that it's important to honor all revolutionaries. Um, but also because we can get frustrated about the, uh, the pace at which we would love to see change happen. And I think as someone who's witnessed so much change in my life, and I'm not 20, but I'm also not 85. I'm only 54 years old. What I've witnessed in my life in the yeah. last 40 years is unimaginable, unimaginable. When I was a kid, I mean, the, the great, uh, the great contrast I love to paint is when I was 12, my dad came out. It was the, it, the most confusing and horrific for being confusing thing that had ever happened to me. When my son was 12, my book came out and the cover was sitting on the kitchen table and he had brought a friend home from school that day when the cover arrived. And, um, and, the, the friend had never been to our house before, but these two, so these two 12 year old boys came in the door, thunk went the backpacks. They went into the kitchen and I came down the stairs to greet them. And I heard my son saying, Oh, this is my mom's book. This is the, co- this is the cover of her book. And the friend said, Confessions of a fairy's daughter growing up with a gay dad. And my son said, Oh yeah, my grandfather's gay. So I don't know if we have juice, but do you want, yeah, so we've got apples, and <laughs> nothing, nothing. Yeah, that was a beautiful moment, and that's how far we've yeah, come. It's, yeah, it is wonderful to re- reflect on how far we've come since our childhood, and I, I can't help thinking back to those tragic words you shared. All I could do was lie or hide. As we think about how far we've come. Uh, your dad felt he had to lie or hide, which seems to have led to you having to lie or hide. 
What do you think it is about our society that has forced this hand upon your family and so many others? And, and then by extension, what, what can we do about that to continue to move in a, in a positive direction? The reason I had to lie or hide was because there was no place for the truth in, in my life. And, and what's beautiful about what has happened from my generation to my sons is that there is space for that truth in his life now. He's, he, he is not gay, but he has lots of friends who are, well, all kinds of, I mean, who identify with all kinds of different things and all in all kinds of different ways. And the level of acceptance of that, that difference in people is something that, that is really wonderful to be able to see and celebrate that we see it everywhere. You know, in sports, sports stars and film stars and, you know, sitcoms and wow, it is just um, that the truth is available to people and they're, it, they have not everywhere, obviously, but in so many more places and ways than it was to me. And, and that I can only celebrate. And as we move forward, are there, are, are there important facets from your perspective that we need to continue to be vigilant about to make sure that, uh, that this continues? Well, my father actually, interestingly enough, he's, he's sometimes concerned when people take these rights and freedoms so for granted. And, and I think one of the, one of the important elements of history, the reason we study history is well it first of all to so that we understand what we're standing on but also so that we can walk forward with that with that consciousness and and it is actually important to remember that not that long ago a man could be arrested for for being with mm -hmm. another man and 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 gay parents could not have um, have the rights to their children. And we don't have to look that far to the South to see those very rights and freedoms threatened. Yeah. Well, yeah, really seriously threatened again or still. Yeah. Um, and so, so moving forward, uh, yeah, Celebrating those also, those things, but also recognizing the fragility of them, I think, is important. Because when we know that something is fragile, we value it more. We take care of it. When it is threatened, we realize it needs rescue. It needs support. And, and, mm. and just because, I, I mean, I was performing my show right up until the pandemic. And I inevitably, almost every time, I would go out after the show and sign books in the lobby and someone would be waiting in a corner for the crowds to clear. And I would see them mm. every time. And, and then right at the end, someone would come and tell me their story. And, and it was a story that was a version of what my family lived all those many years ago. That story is still being lived. There's still, there are mm. still people who are terrified to come out who who are married and 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 with children and then realize that the truth of who they are is not going to fit in this marriage and they need to now break some hearts in order for everyone to become free it's 
it's just important to know that, that it still happens and that that story is still evolving. Mm-hmm. I, I just want to go back to uh, your mom's experience one more time. And uh, like I, I think I said earlier, that's kind of the last portion of the book. And um, I'm just wondering, you talk about how, you know, uh, her and your father now are quite close again. And these family zooms, how did she work through that to get back to that place? You know, the, the truth of the truthful answer to that is I'm not actually sure because they didn't speak for a very long time or, or if they did speak, it was with such frozen rigidity that we were all made so anxious by it. We just wanted it to end, you know, like at weddings or something like that. Um, but, and so that went on for about 30 years or more. And then when my dad turned 75, he invited, um, and I should, I should just say, I also understood. I understood why my mother didn't want to rush to be friends with him. It had been, mm. there, there was a lot that, that happened. And, and it wasn't just, she was not, she was never homophobic. She never put that on us. And um, she was all, she understood that she was very accepting of my father and probably at some level, maybe even, uh, maybe not suspected, but well, deeply understood and then to see him, it's a lot made sense after that. Um, so it wasn't anything to do with that. That wasn't the issue. It, some of it was the, yeah, the secrecy and then just the natural, um, you know, the sort of carnage that comes with any divorce um, or many divorces, I should say. Um, but my dad, when he turned 75, decided he wanted to bring all of his children and grandchildren to Oxford. He had studied at Oxford and it had been this just watershed in his life and a place that was really important to him and none of us had ever been. And so he rented a, a, a house in the countryside and invited everybody, all the kids and grandkids. And he also extended the invitation to my mother and her sister. And uh, well, none of us ever imagined that she would go because they hadn't spoken for 32 mm-hmm. years. I mean, what? so then my brother said, oh, did you hear mom's coming to Oxford? I said, she's not coming. She's just being nice. And so the next time I talked to her, I said, mom, there's a rumor <laughs> that you're coming to Oxford. And she said, oh, yeah, I thought it would be fun. And I thought, what? You thought it'd be fun to spend a week in the same house with my dad <laughs> and Michael. Michael and my dad have been together now over 40 years. But uh Yeah. I just could not figure this out. And then the first thing I did, I was on the phone with her and I actually opened up Google Maps and Googled the walking distance to the nearest pub from the house that my dad had rented. (laughs) We are going to all need to get out of the house. (laughs) But, um, But anyway, she did go. And I honestly don't know what what transpired. All I can say is when we got out of the car, my mother and her sister had already arrived. And what I heard coming out of the windows of this house that my dad had rented was a music that I had never, ever imagined I would hear again, which was the combined laughter of my parents. And that mm. continued for the entire week. We laughed uproariously around this kitchen table every night. Uh, my parents went and did sightseeing together. My, I remember watching, looking and seeing my, my mother and father and Michael and my mom's sister all walking off to go and see, I can't remember what, and just thinking this is, if that is possible, anything is possible. I'm witnessing a miracle. And I asked my mother Mm. about it a bit later, just 
just how, how did that happen? And the only thing she said, which I thought was so beautiful was, we think that forgiveness is about keeping something from someone else, but forgiveness is actually holding something from ourselves. When we, when, no, when we mm. refuse to forgive, we're, we're actually mm. holding something from ourselves. And by contrast, when we forgive someone, we don't give that person anything. We give it to ourselves. Mm. That's a, a beautiful sentiment. Um, from your perspective now, Allison, what do you appreciate most about your father's journey? That, that courage and truth. I think it set me on pretty, pretty much a lifetime course of fascination for the essence of truth and what that is in the world and, and what it means when we, when we step into that, when we embody it, when we radiate it, when we, when we, the sensitivity it develops in us to understand when we are in the presence of it be that in another person or art or nature, whatever that is. But that, that was a real gift. And I, I admire it still to be, I don't know why it's so difficult to be just fully who we are. Why is that such a difficult thing? But when you have someone who models that, which in essence, both of my parents do in their own way, um, it's a huge, it's an immense gift. Mm. Um, Allison, when I, when I read this book the first time, uh, my husband and I had just been dating for a while. We were starting to get kind of serious and we were doing a cross country drive to visit his family in Southern Ontario. We live in Alberta. And um, I laughed because uh, he's a high school band conductor um, and I'm like a big poli sci guy. So I'm reading this book and I'd be laughing and I kept saying to Curtis, like, this guy is both of us combined. <laughs> like, like, like it's really weird. And I, I kept saying it. I don't think I've ever identified with a character as much as I did with your father. Um, and, uh, um, I think that just made me enjoy it even more. And, uh, I'm really wondering, I'm really wondering, sorry. Uh, how's, how's Joe Waring doing today? He's great. My, my dad is as ever. Um, he is also, he has Parkinson's, and so that has slowed him down. But for an 85-year-old with Parkinson's, wow, he's pretty impressive. He still goes yeah. to concerts, yeah, I don't know, two or three times a week. Um, he joins our family Zooms with stories and, the, you know, a great zinger. He's, he's, he's still very much in love with life. Allison, will your dad uh, likely listen to this interview? I think he will. Yeah. <laughs> well, Joe, if you're listening, shout out to you. And uh, thanks for uh, sharing your story through your daughter. Mm. Um, well, we're almost out of time. And uh, the way that we kind of wrap this up, Allison, is John and I each like to share kind of our takeaway from the conversation. And then we throw it to you for the final word. Uh, John, I've been pretty generous this season in letting you go first, but I noticed that you and I were both looking down to write stuff at the same time. So I'm scared that if I let you go first, you're going to steal mine. It's not, it's not going to be the same thing. So, go so ahead. I'm going to go first today. Um, I have two things to say. Um, the first is 
I think there can be a real negative stigma towards closeted gay men who aren't able to work through that and accept themselves. And especially for your father, I mean, the time that him and your mother would have gotten married, that was unthinkable that you could be an out gay man. Right. And uh, like you said, it still happens today. And so um, I think there's a negative stigma within the community towards the, uh, those folks in that situation. And, and I just, I wish we didn't have that. I think this conversation, I've always felt that way. And I think this conversation has really solidified that for me is that, you know, um, these folks have to work through that in the way that they have to work through that. And I think that your dad's story, it really gives hope that you can have both things um, as well. And I also just want to say, I loved what you said about um, that you didn't have kind of a way to live truthfully um, after your dad came out and while you were working through it and, and um, kind of caught up in some of the lies and things. And I just, I found that really fascinating because that's something that I often talk about when I share my own story is, you know, living the lie and working through covering up who you are and kind of all the effort and stress that that takes. And I don't think that we think often about the folks around us and our family and what they also have to go through and what they also have to work through. Um, and so that's a good reminder for us that, um, it is obviously our own story, but the folks around us are impacted still and have to go through that. Some of the best advice I ever got was that when you come out, you've worked through it for however many years and the people around you are just going to start that process now. Um, and so I think that the way you worded that, that really was touching. And I, I just wanted to touch back to that and just put that reminder out again. John? Thanks, Travis. I found a real connection uh, in my story with your story. Uh, it's funny, The my takeaway is usually something that has just uh, almost blindsided me. And this is quite the opposite. It's it's reminded me of something. Uh, when I was quite young, uh, my, our parents divorced, and it, there were some difficult times. But long story short, many years later, as your parents did, they reconciled and and ended up 30, 40 years later, hanging out together, traveling together with their respective new spouses. And uh, that really just struck me when you said that um, not forgiving is holding something, holding on to something, not allowing something to heal. And uh, forgiveness really is a gift to ourselves, and not just to ourselves, to our our families and everyone around us, because then others hear these stories and uh, are inspired, I think, by that by that kind of forgiveness and, uh, and moving on. And it's a beautiful thing. So thanks so much for sharing your story today. Thank you, John. Uh, so Allison, we're going to throw it to you for the last word. And uh, we usually kind of like our first question, we always generally ask the same question at the end. Uh, and I'm going to tweak it and change it a little bit for you just because of the uh, different circumstance that we're talking in today. Uh, what's the one thing that you would want people to know about having a family member coming out of the closet and kind of what's the best way that you think um, that we can support them? Having a family member coming out of the closet asks us to be a better person. That That's what, that's what the demand is. It, it, it requires us to accept more fully, to love more deeply, to feel more compassionately and ultimately, we are all made better for it. 
when my dad came out, I thought it was my life's greatest burden. And as I just said to um, a girl who came up to me at one of my shows in tears, because she just learned that her father was gay and she really didn't know what to do. And I said, this feels like the worst news and and the worst thing that could possibly happen to you. And you're just going to have to believe me when I say it might just be the best thing that's ever happened to you. I love that. Um, well, Allison, I just wanted to thank you for your time today and for coming on and sharing your story with us and your dad's story. And um, I think that our listeners going to have a lot to take away from this conversation, just as John and I did. Uh, and I loved the enthusiasm that you had when we reached out to you too, to, to come on and be a part of this project. Um, we really appreciate that. Uh, and listener, I want to thank you today for joining us as well. Uh, we have another great story coming to you next week. We hope you'll join us then. Take care. This has been Canada Out of the Closet. The show is produced and hosted by Travis Bozer and John Whitten. The creative consultant, Scott Blair. The theme song is Brighter Place by the Young Presidents. A special thank you today to our guest for bringing their special story to you. By the way, you'll find us both on Instagram and Facebook at Canada Out of the Closet, and that's all one word. If you have any questions or comments, reach out to us by email at canadaoutofthecloset at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another Canadian living out of the closet. <laughs>